You're listening to Semper Reform on the Radio, where the Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is applied to all of life. There are many people who do not want to hear the truth because it will shake up the false hope they have that they're going into heaven when indeed they are not. Christ is our King. Scripture is our law. Scripture and the laws of our country now collide head on. Now, just to make it clear, we don't bow down to Caesar. So what does Paul do when he gets his big shot at the Areopagus? Watch him. Now, not only has Paul not compromised in order to get here, but once he's here, he says, your worldview is wrong, your philosophy is wrong, it's not just wrong, it's an affront to God, you ought to know better, you're in sin. But the good news is, God has extended to you an opportunity to repent. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Semper Reformanda Radio. My name is Tim, and I'm going to be your host today. We have with us a special guest. Uh, Timothy Kaufman is back, and uh, he's been, I, I think he's just been very busy as of late. We haven't had him on the show recently, but we are going to be covering a topic that I think is pretty, pretty important, and it's something that I think the church needs to go over again, and that is just the doctrine of Mary. And the reason why I say that it's it's important for for the time that we're in, and there's a reason why that the church needs to go over it again, is is just simply because we see so many people being drawn into Roman Catholicism. And with Tim Kaufman, he's our he's our Roman Catholic expert. These are issues that we want to address. These are issues that we want to take up. And especially right now because it's we're, we're in the 500-year anniversary to the uh, Protestant Reformation, what sparked the Protestant Reformation in October 31st of uh, 1517 when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the church door in Wittenberg. And what it's just it's astonishing. Um, Brother Kaufman, uh, let me let me. I'm, I want to introduce you a little bit more, but uh, let me just ask you: Are you are you familiar with the Bible Answer Man? Yes, I am. So I recently found out that that Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man, converted to Greek Orthodoxy, and I I decided to tune in yesterday. It's a hot topic, so I figured that he was going to uh, be. Uh, Talking about that on his show, I tuned in yesterday. I actually called and I called at uh, like about 4:20, uh, as early as I could, and I waited on the phone for about 40 minutes. I didn't even get to talk to him. But during the show, he affirmed Roman Catholics as uh, as a true church. He affirmed Roman Catholicism as a as a true faith, um, and he said that we hold all of the same essentials as as uh, we're in line with them. When it comes to the essentials, and a caller called in and challenged him a little bit on it, and said, "We don't hold to the same essentials. They have a different gospel." 
And uh, Hank Hanegraaff appealed to James chapter 2 uh, and, you know, just gave an off answer that just muddied the water. And we see so many Protestant professing, well, he's not, he's Greek Orthodox now, but we see so many professing Bible-believing evangelicals running to Roman Catholicism, running to affirming Roman Catholicism. We have uh, people affirming the, the Roman Catholic Pope, uh, like T.D. Jakes, and um, who's the guy that wrote, wrote uh, The Purpose Driven Life? Uh, let me think. What's his name? I forgot his name, but the guy who wrote The Purpose Driven Life. And so it's our goal. Is that Rick this, Warren? Did yes. Rick Warren write that? Yeah. Yes, yes. Thank you. <laughs> I, had a, I had a brain lapse there. Uh, Rick Warren. Uh, but so many evangelical leaders are, are leading their flocks right back to uh, what I would say is extremely dangerous territory. And so it's our goal in this in this podcast to stand firm on the Word of God and to shed some light on these issues. And uh, Tim Kaufman is uh, the uh, he has a blog called WhiteHorseBlog.com, and you can did I get that right? I always butcher that, but yeah, you got it right. The the right. formal title is Out of His Mouth, right? On a verse from Revelation, but the URL is WhiteHorseBlog.com, right? I I I think last time I said .org, and uh, so and I, I we were just so everybody knows we've been having some major computer issues and I, I looked it up before <laughs> before uh, before we started and then I had to restart my computer and I didn't look it up again but uh, it's a white horse blog it's uh, it's out of his mouth uh, not to be confused with the white horse in uh, just so everybody knows it's a different blog site but uh, he is a prolific writer uh, he's a contributor to the Trinity Foundation which we would also want to recommend He's written a number of uh, articles on there, and you can just search for his name. Uh, go to the, the Review Archives section in the Trinity Foundation. He also has a couple of uh, – he has a lecture on the Trinity Foundation about Tim Keller, and we've had him on the show before to talk about Tim Keller. And then we've also had him on the show before to talk about the Roman Catholic Mass. And so today what we're going to be talking about is the, the doctrine of Mary – and we're going to be confronting what Roman Catholicism teaches with regards to that. And let me just let me just tell everybody this: <laughs> uh, Brother Kaufman is is really um, he he is he does a lot of work and, and he uh, he is very in depth in in the material that he he presents. Now, I. I can sort of give a defense uh, against the doctrine of, of Mary that's held by the Roman Catholics, but not at the same level as Tim Kaufman. So, so I have very little to offer to today's message other than to just uh, maybe ask questions and uh, if, if they come up. But after going through Tim Kaufman's notes uh, last night, he, he sent them to me. Um, he's, he's very thorough. And I, I, I don't know if I have any questions because he, he just covers the material in, in such a way that's very helpful. So, Brother Tim, uh, I, let me just say thank you for coming on. Uh, it's, it's a joy to have you here with us today. Um, you, you've been out. I know that you, you, you got sick for a while, and then you've, you've just been busy with work. 
and, and everything else that's going on. But uh, real quick, uh, is there anything else that I that you would want to add to what I said? Anything else that you've got going on? Uh, well, I, I appreciate the introduction, of course, and uh, uh, I will. I'll do the best I can to convey the information that I have. We'll go over some of it pretty quick, and what I like to do is provide references. But I want to go back to the issue of Hank Hanegraaff. Um, I was so disappointed to hear that he converted, and and what I typically find is that Eastern Orthodoxy is just a, a waypoint on people's road to Rome, and he's not the first one to take that path, and won't be the last. But what I find is that so many Protestants in their studies of church history start in the 16th century. And so when Roman Catholicism comes with a lot of arguments from the preceding centuries, uh, the, the Protestants will swallow those arguments whole and authoritative and uh, swallow them as authoritative arguments and don't have the resources necessary to counter the arguments. And so what I find is they often are victims of their own ignorance and victims of the fraudulent reconstruction of history that Roman Catholic apologists present as the truth. And I'll just say it as it is. It's a fraudulent reconstruction of history. And when people are not equipped to answer the historical argument, they tend to fail in the scriptural argument as well. And what I mean is that we can be equipped from the scriptures to make arguments, and it's important that we do. But it's a very powerful argument that is made by Roman Catholics when they say, oh, all the early church believed differently from you. Was the whole early church wrong? And then people say, wow, the early church couldn't be wrong. Otherwise, Jesus is a liar, and therefore I need to bow down to the cross and to relics and to the Eucharist and to Mary. And what I want to do and what I hope we can do here is just equip, equip our listeners with some information that will help them argue against the Roman Catholic apologist. And um, just to give you some illustrations, and we'll get into this uh, later on when we cover Mary as Ark of the Covenant. Well, let me uh, let me just—I just want to point out that you hit the nail on the head. I—I I don't suppose that you heard uh, Hank Hanegraaff's uh, radio show yesterday, did you? No, no, I did not. Because he said exactly what you just went over—that we need to get back to what the early church believed—and he kept referencing the early church and and what they what they viewed and that's what we need to go back to and so you're I, I think that you're identifying the problem accurately well I, I actually cover a survey of all these different topics in an article on my blog called longing for Nicaea and the the title of the blog comes from the fact that so many Roman Catholic arguments uh, have a, a continuous line of um, traceability all the way back to the latter part of the fourth century, but they can't quite get to Nicaea. And so many times they try to get to Nicaea, which is, it's generally a, a church council that everybody would agree was a legitimate council, although there's some folks that would say it was not legitimate. But I read through the canons of Nicaea and the communications of the, the synodical letters from the council of Nicaea, and I just don't see anything that's 
horrific or heretical. And so because Protestants generally would accept Nicaea as a legitimate council, Roman Catholicism tries quite earnestly to trace its doctrines at least back to Nicaea, which is 325 AD. And they figure if they can get back that far, then even the Protestants would have to get on board because the Protestants generally agree that Nicaea was a legitimate council. The problem is they always get stuck at the latter part of the fourth century. And I, I hear it time and time again. Uh, the, the early church believed that Mary was sinless, so they say. And uh, so the Roman Catholic says, yeah, the early church believed that Mary was sinless. Why? As recently as the latter part of the fourth century, we have this father and that father and, and the other father saying this, that, the other. But they can't seem to get back earlier, latter part of the fourth century. And uh, one, one in particular that I thought was very revealing was that Scott Hahn, who also a former Presbyterian, became Roman Catholic. He wrote the famous book, Rome, Sweet Home and talked about returning to Roman Catholicism. And he said, well, the early church believed that Mary was the Ark of the New Covenant. And he says, why, why is, as, as early as the, the third century, we have Hippolytus describing Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant. Well, when you go back and read Hippolytus, he actually says that Jesus' body was the Ark of the New Covenant, not Mary. And, and, and Scott Hahn's reading was based on a misunderstanding of what Hippolytus had said in another paragraph. And what we find throughout the early church, even past the, the fourth century, is the continuous reference to Jesus as the Ark of the New Covenant, the church as the Ark of the New Covenant, the believer as the Ark of the New Covenant. And you don't end up with Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant, really, till um, some obscure reference that was found among the works of Ambrose in the latter part of the fourth century, identifying Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant. And the same thing goes with the assumption of Mary. There's just no evidence for it in the early church until after the fourth century. Sinlessness traces to the latter part of the fourth century. And, uh, and, and we find that over and over again. And so what I want to point out is that we need to know this history. And it's extremely important for us to first state that the scriptures are the sole rule of faith. The important thing for us to understand is that the historical argument that Roman Catholicism makes is fraudulent and is full of gaps. And when Protestants are illiterate in the realm of church history, they tend to fall for those fraudulent arguments, just like Scott Hahn did, just like Jason Stellman did, just like Hank Hanegraaff did. It just happens over and over and over again. And what I want to do is walk through some various aspects, and we're just limiting our discussion to Mary this time, although we've had conversations about uh, the uh, sacrifice of the Mass and its origins in the latter part of the fourth century. And uh, what we'll do as we go through some of these topics on Mary, find that either the, the doctrines developed late, like 300 years later than the apostolic era, or the references that occurred earlier than that aren't consistent with the modern Roman Catholic interpretation of the terms. And, and again, I want to equip our listeners so that they don't have to go to the Bible answer man who's going to then convert to Roman Catholicism. <laughs> they should be able to look these things up on their own, and I think that we can help them do that. Yeah, you know, and, and, and just referencing him as the Bible answer man, that is just ironic and sad that 
the 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 Bible the the man who professes to be the Bible answer man, he's not getting the gospel right. He's not getting the doctrine of justification by faith alone right. And just just for our listeners, I I firmly believe uh, that we should do what Romans sixteen seventeen says to to mark them and avoid them and to warn other people away from them. And we're gonna get into to Mary and and um, and th that's going to be our topic for today. But I just want to warn our listeners away from Hank Hanegraaff. He is not fit to be the Bible answer man. And, and I, I say that with, I'm not saying that with, with a callousness or with, with malice or hatred. Folks, if, he, if he's not getting the gospel right, then you shouldn't be listening to him. If he's leading people to Rome, if he's affirming Roman Catholicism, if he's if he's referencing James chapter two as a defense for Rome's view of of the the doctrine of justification by faith and works, then he, I pray that his platform, that his ministry, which is not a ministry of Christ, would be destroyed. And and that might sound harsh. That might sound mean spirited. But folks, he's leading people astray and it is it's extremely dangerous just just how reckless he's being in in the things that he's saying and so he is not the bible answer man don't be fooled pray for the man uh we're we're praying that that he be converted to christ that he that he not be deceived but that's why we're doing what we're doing here at semper reformanda radio uh so tim uh let's go ahead and uh get into the the stuff on mary Okay, let's uh, let's run into run in where angels fear to tread. Uh, the typically the question of Mary is something that is uh, it's an entry point for Roman Catholic apologists when they're trying to convert Protestants to Roman Catholicism, and the reason is that we have a general regard and respect for Mary. And I remember hearing uh, a, a girl say once, "Well, we we should." respect Mary. The scripture said she was blessed above all women. And I had to correct her and say, that's not what the scripture says. It says she is blessed among women. And and we have to remember that uh, uh, there there is a Mary that is referenced in Jesus' uh, testimonies in the scriptures, where he says that uh, this woman's name will be proclaimed wherever the gospel is preached. And the funny thing is that it's not Mary, his mother. It's a different Mary. It was Mary, the one who uh, who bowed and worshipped before him. And remember when he uh, when she was anointing his feet, and people questioned whether she should be doing that. He said, "I assure you, what this woman has done will be told wherever the gospel is preached." And so, if there's a scriptural mandate to preach Mary wherever the gospel is preached, uh, there is. It's just not his mother that we're supposed to be talking about. And we'll get into a little bit more of that later, but. What I want to do is first go to the scriptures to find out what the scriptures say about Mary. And we're going to cover this in summary format because there, there are just a few places in scriptures where she's mentioned. And, and it's important to know what, those, what the context is. And so we'll, I'm just going to go through a list of places and everybody's so familiar with them that we're not going to read the text. But um, the first is the Annunciation. And that's Luke 1, 26 to 33, where the angel Gabriel comes and speaks to Mary and announces that she will be conceiving the Christ child. 
Um, there's the presentation of Jesus in the temple, and it's uh, Luke 2.35. And that's a very important one because that's where uh, it was prophesied that a sword of sorrow, uh, Simeon prophesied that a sword of sorrow would pierce her heart. And uh, it's interesting what the early church thought that meant. We'll get to that when we get to Mary's uh, sinlessness. Uh, there's the wedding at Cana where where Mary uh, points out that Jesus points out to Jesus that the uh, hosts have run out of wine. That one's particularly interesting to me just because uh, the, uh, the the typical interpretation of that is Mary told Jesus what to do and Jesus obeyed. When you read the text, there's no command issued from Mary. Simply, they have no wine, at least no command uh, from Mary to Jesus, nothing for him to obey. It's very interesting how the, a command to Mary, from Mary to Jesus gets read into the text. Um, there's the finding in the temple where uh, Jesus and uh, Mary and Joseph had gotten separated, and they find out that they left him behind and so they have to go back and get him. That's Luke 2, 46 to 52. Uh, there's several uh, places in Scripture where this is mentioned, but the mother and brothers of Jesus are identified in Matthew 12, 46 to 50, and that's when they came searching for him. And, and interestingly, Mary is identified among them, and together as a group, they're identified as unbelieving. Uh, Mary at the foot of the cross, and that's where uh, Je Jesus uh, says to, to John, uh, you know, I, I want you to say, woman, behold your son, and then to John, behold your mother. And then uh, th those are the direct references to Mary, the, the ones that will be addressing in this series that we're doing on Mary. There's some more general references that I want to mention, and one is Romans 3.23, where it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what's interesting is the early church included Mary in the all there, the all have sinned. And uh, then there's the woman of Revelation chapter 12, and that's where there's a woman uh, standing on the moon, robed in the sun and with a crown of stars on her head. And uh, Roman Catholics would say that that's Mary. I would say that that's the uh, that's the apostolic church as it transitions from the the Jewish believers before Christ transitioning to the Gentile and Jewish church after Christ. But that's a, a portrait of the woman who is God's special people, and it's transitory only in that. The, the woman of Revelation 12, I believe, spans the period as the Jews, uh, as Christ comes and then he forms his church and then moves on. And the Roman Catholics would say that this is uh, a reference to Mary. Now, what's interesting is that this is pretty much the text that we all have to go by. Uh, the early church used these texts. Uh, Protestants use these texts. Catholics use these texts. And Protestants look at this and we say... Uh, Mary was sinful. She was occasionally an obstructionist and distracted Jesus from his ministry of teaching. Uh, Jesus, on occasion, when asked, when, when, announced, when it was announced that his mother and brothers and sisters are waiting for him, uh, he said, who are, who's my mother? And he points to the people who are with him and says, uh, Any, anyone who does the will of God is a mother, brother, or sister to me. And you, you you know, Protestants look at that and say, you know, that's interesting. Jesus had the chance to do what Catholics want us to do and completely defer to his mother and say, pardon me, everybody, my mother is here. And 
and, and, and a woman of her stature can't be left waiting. So let me show honor to my mother by cutting short my ministry of preaching and going and attending to her every need. And of course, Jesus didn't do anything like that. He completely, uh, he ignored the request and went on preaching. And what's interesting about that is how the early church interpreted that. We'll cover a little bit of that when we uh, go through this series. But what we want to do today, and we're not going to cover everything or every text, but what we're going to do is in this series, we're going to cover Mary as queen mother, and particularly the Old Testament role in the Davidic line of uh, the mother of the kings in the Old Testament are taken as a figure for an office that Mary would eventually occupy as mother of the king of Israel. Uh, then there's Mary as Theotokos. It's a Greek word that literally means bearer of God. And we're going to talk about the origins of the term, the original use of the term, and then finally the Roman Catholic interpretation and translation of that to, term, to turn it into mother of God or, uh, or generatrix of God. Um, we're going to talk about the Mary as Ark of the Covenant. We covered a little bit of that earlier. Uh, we're going to talk about the sinlessness of Mary. We're going to talk about the perpetual virginity of Mary. And finally, the assumption of Mary. And then we'll wrap up with some thoughts on uh, a scriptural view of Mary. And, and basically, we will have summarized a defense that Protestants can use to answer Roman Catholics. And what I think is so funny about this is that uh, on, on my blog, one time I was having a discussion with a Roman Catholic, and we summarized, uh, various Protestants on the board had been summarizing their view of Mary based on these scriptures. And this uh, Catholic responded and says, I already know how you Mary-hating Protestants interpret all those scripture verses. What's funny is the accusation of Mary-hating is just simply a, a complete distraction. I don't know any Protestant that doesn't love Mary as a sister in Christ, the way we love Abraham, you know, the way we love, um, the way we love Moses, the the way we love David. Uh, the, you know, we we love all our brothers and sisters in Christ. We 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 love the universal church, and all the saints from times past, and and all the saints yet to come. Uh, none of us hate Mary, but because. There's not a lot of substance to the Roman Catholic position on Mary, and I'll just say it. And I know that they're not going to like me saying it. There's so little substance on their actual position on Mary that their only real uh, option is to respond with an ad, ad hominem attack and say, well, you must hate Mary. And, and it's an insubstantial argument. And what we'll find is what's so ironic about the accusation is that saying something like that to criticize our view of these scriptures and Mary as we can see her through these scriptures is that the Protestant position is very much in line with the position that the early church took on Mary. Um, and and we'll, as we go through, um, we'll address that a little bit more. But uh, to the degree that we hate Mary, as, uh, as, as that Roman Catholic would say, it's absolutely a false accusation. We do not hate Mary. But the accusation itself identifies us with the early church and distances Roman Catholicism from the early church. Well, that, that seems to be a pretty common tactic uh, among uh, people who just aren't able to debate or defend their position. We, we see this happen all the time with uh, issues concerning homosexuality or the LGBTQ agenda. You, you can't rationally defend these positions. And 
once you voice disagreement with it, your disagreement is equated with hatred. And in, in all actuality, us defending the, the biblical doctrine of Mary actually shows great concern for who Mary was. Uh, we, we care enough about who she was as, as an individual, as a person who is saved by Christ to defend who she actually was and, and, uh, and go to the scriptures for that. Um, all right, so let's go ahead and continue then. Okay, well, our very first topic then is Mary as Queen Mother. And uh, the, the, uh, when I first moved to Huntsville, Alabama back in 1989, I was still Roman Catholic and I wanted to find a church to go to. And my, my options were, uh, I can't remember all the names of the churches, but one stuck out to me. It was called Our Lady Queen of the Universe. And that was the uh, that was one of my options for a Roman Catholic church to attend when I first moved here. And that title of Mary as Queen is something that's very special to Roman Catholics. They see her as the uh, not only the Queen of the Universe, but the Queen Mother of the King. And the Queen Mother of the King gets whatever she wants and can actually be Jesus' counselor. And there are even even some who say that uh, at the at the command of Mary all obey even God himself and there that, that, that's just blasphemy it's ridiculous and I and, and I want to say something important here it's offensive to Mary <laughs> because they basically have turned her into a monstrosity that the scriptures do not testify to and any human being to be so twisted and turned and morphed into something that's so offensive and objectionable is just utterly disrespectful I'll just go out and say that the, the way that the Roman Catholicism has contorted Mary into this monstrosity is just, I find it deeply offensive. But, of course, it's not, it's not about my personal interpretation that matters. What matters is what the scriptures say. But they've turned her into something that's just, just obscene. And uh, I just want to point that out, that it's, it's a ridiculous thing they've done, and I consider it to be incredibly disrespectful of Mary. But um, but let's let's cover this this issue of Queen Mother. Is that the, the Roman Catholics believe, and they would argue that in the Old Testament, there was an official and influential office called the Queen Mother, and this Queen Mother manifests in the Davidic line of kings, and that Mary, because she is the last in the long line of mothers of Davidic kings, would be the one to op- occupy that office on a perpetual, permanent basis. Mary, in the eyes of Roman Catholicism, is eternally and perpetually the queen mother of the last king of the Davidic line. And now in heaven, she gets to uh, enjoy the same privileges that the queen mother did in the Old Testament. And the evidence is presented not just from scripture, uh, as far as from Roman Catholicism, but they would also say that this was common among the Near Eastern kings and their mothers and in the surrounding nations around Israel, it was not unusual for there to be influential mothers of kings of those nations. Now, it's an extremely complex argument from Roman Catholicism, and uh, it is full of holes, and I'll, I'll explain the holes, the contradictions, and the con- countervailing evidence. But let's just start with the first argument. The first argument is that 
in the line of Davidic kings of Judah, their mothers, the, each king's mother is listed when the new king takes the throne. Okay, so the first point I want to make is that when Jehoram and Ahaz took the thrones, their mothers were not mentioned. They were in the Davidic line, the, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And Jehoram took the throne in the Second Kings 8.16, and Ahaz uh, took the, king, uh, the throne in Second Kings 16.2. And in neither case are their mothers identified for us or mentioned when they took the throne. So let me just say for the beginning that obviously there, there's not a general rule about queen mothers in the Davidic line because we have two cases of Davidic kings whose mothers were not mentioned. Now, another argument is made by Roman Catholicism, and that's the argument that the term Gebira is a term used for the mother of the Davidic king of Judah. And the, 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 the Gebira is an office occupied by an influential woman who is the mother, and that would make Mary today the, the, the perpetual Gebira of Israel because she's the mother of the king. Okay, so the term Gabira, uh, at least in this uh, rendering, is only used six times in Scripture, and I, I say at least in this rendering because there's other uh, there's other similar words like Gabirat, which refers to a mistress or a powerful woman. Is the one we're focusing on because it has to do with royalty and. The, the Roman Catholic argument is that the Gabira is an office that describes the mother of a Davidic king. Well, the problem is that it's only used six times in Scripture. And of those six times, only two actually refer to a mother of a Davidic king. The other four times refers either to the wife of the king of Egypt, to the grandmother of the king of Judah, or to Jezebel, who was the mother of a king of the northern kingdom. So what's interesting is that the argument at the outset is, well, in the Davidic line, there is the office of queen mother, because all these kings' mothers are mentioned when they take the throne. Like I said, there's two exceptions to that, Jehoram and Ahaz. That Gabira must refer to this office, and yet of the six times it's used, one time refers to the wife of the king of Egypt, not his mother. That's 1 Kings 11:19. Two uses refer to the grandmother of King Asa. That's 1 Kings 15:13 and 1 Chronicles 15:16. And one use refers to Jezebel, the mother of the king of Israel. She was not a, I mean, her, her son was not a Davidic king. It's 2 Kings 10:13. Was was that the uh, same Jezebel that was extremely wicked? Or is that a different Oh, yes, judgment? yes. And, yeah, yeah, it is. And you'll find that a great many of these these women that are identified. Are, <laughs> that's that's uh, that's kind of problematic. Very evil. Yeah, that's well, the, You know, the argument well, the Roman Catholics, they'll, they'll say, well, the kings were evil too, and that doesn't mean that there's no, that Jesus well, can't be a righteous true. king. But the real question is, is there an office of the queen mother? And, and, right, and like I okay. said, the argument is full of holes because... Yeah, and what, what I would encourage folks to look at is that the, the, the word mother is used several times in the Old Testament in reference to a man's grandmother. And it's important to know that because 
in 1 Kings 15.13 and 1 Chronicles 15.16, it's the grandmother of King Asa, but the term used there is mother, but when you look at the genealogy, she's actually his grandmother. So obviously the office doesn't belong to the mother of the king if it's the grandmother of the king that occupies that, that office. So, so again, so, there's... Let me, uh, let me just say that the, what I find really interesting about this is that you are defending the, the, defending the word of God by appealing to or by, by going and checking the genealogies, the, the very thing that most of us skip over when we read our Bibles. So I, I just find it incredible. I mean, the genealogies uh, are in there for a reason. And and we, we sometimes read the Bible and it's, uh, see all these names and this person begat this person and this person begat this person. And it's just amazing that <laughs> you're, you're actually refuting uh, the Roman, Roman Catholicism and, and their error by going and checking the genealogies. I find that incredible. Well, uh, it's, it's a very interesting study and it's sometimes quite complex because different people, sometimes people went by two different names and that needs to be sorted out. And sometimes the... Um, the, uh, the the mother uh, the, the, there were periods when the king went off and hung out with the uh, with other nations and came back and, and next thing you know he's got a wife or wives and you have to you have to figure out uh, you know when did he get these wives and, and who were they and where did they fall in line and that's going to be really important in our next one because the next argument that's made for uh, for the role of the queen mother is based on the political activities of powerful women in the royal court. And, and the scriptures portray powerful women in the royal court. There's no doubt about it. But, but the six examples of powerful women in the royal court, and these aren't the same six that are identified as Gabira, but they're a different. They're, there's some overlap, but they're different, a different group. And the, the argument is made that these are very powerful women in the royal court. And even though they're not all called Gabira, they obviously were mothers of the king. So... There are two exceptions that we can dismiss at the beginning. One is Jezebel. And the reason I want to dismiss Jezebel from the beginning is because she was of the house of Israel. She was not of the house of Judah. And so the idea of her as a figure for a queen mother in the Davidic line doesn't make sense at all. She's in her reference there's first Kings sixteen thirty one and second Kings ten thirteen. And like I said, she can't serve as a figure for Mary's reign because she wasn't a, a, a queen in the Davidic line. The next one is Athaliah. And uh, that's 2 Kings 8.26. And we're going to dismiss her from consideration because the political power that she manifested only occurred after her son was dead, not during his reign. So her political power enjoyed on behalf of the, because her son was the king of Israel. She enjoyed her political power after he died. The next four cases have one thing in common, and what's very interesting about this is Bathsheba, Hamutal, and Nehushta. All were politically powerful women on the Davidic side, but what's interesting about these three, these four is they all have one thing in common. They were instrumental in getting their son on the throne when he was not the legitimate heir. Bathsheba's son Solomon was not next in line to the throne. You could read about uh, that situation in 1 Chronicles 3. Makah's son, Abijah, was not next in line for the throne. You can read about him in 2 Chronicles 11, 18 to 23. Hamatal's son, Jehoaz, 
was not the next in line for the throne. You can read about him in 2 Kings 23, 31 to 36. Nehushta's son, Jehoiakim, was not next in line to the throne. You can read about him in 2 Kings 24, 8 to 18 and 2 Chronicles 36, 9 to 11. Now, what's significant is here, we have six powerful women. Two can be ruled out from the outset, one because she wasn't in the Davidic line and the other because she got her power after her son was dead. So obviously she can't be queen mother if there's not even a king, right? So the other four all have to do with women who were instrumental in getting their son on the throne, even though he wasn't next in line. And that explains their involvement in their political power and to some degree their influence in the kingdom is that they were instrumental in making sure that even though their son wasn't the heir apparent, he still ended up ruling as king. Now, we have just covered three things that are extremely important. One is every single Davidic king is not identified with his mother. So I, we can't claim there's a general rule if there's two exceptions to it. So we can't look and say, well, every king is identified with his mother when he takes the throne. The second thing is when the term Gebirah is used, only twice out of the six times does it even refer to the mother of a Davidic king. Okay. The third one is when we have examples of politically powerful women, we rule out Jezebel because she wasn't of the house of Judah. And we rule out Athaliah because her power was exerted after her son was already dead. And that leaves us with four cases of powerful women. The most consistent pattern in all of this is that they were powerful because they intervened on behalf of their son, who was not the heir apparent, to get him on the throne. But what's significant about that is that Mary doesn't have to intervene to get her son on the throne, right? He's the heir apparent, and he took the throne. Mary doesn't need to be called Gebera. Most of the time that the scriptures refer to Gebera, it's not even a reference to a Davidic king or the, or the mother of a Davidic king. So Mary doesn't need that title either. And we don't need the title. Um, we don't need to, to worry about whether there's this pattern in the Old Testament of having this queen mother who rules over everything, because we find cases in the Old Testament where that wasn't the case. In other words, the, the problem with Rome's argument here about the, the office, it's, it's conjecture, it's full of holes, it's inconsistent. And, and I want to read a summary from, this is from a Jewish guy named Zafira ben Barak, and he wrote an article called The Status and Right of the Gabira. And he summarized it so well, it's the same thing that anybody would conclude if they went and studied the situation in the scriptures. It's a, he says, these circumstances lead us to conclude that as a rule, the Gabira or queen mother had no official political status in the kingdom, and the mere fact of her being a queen mother did not bestow upon her any official political status beyond the honor due to her by virtue of her position as a mother. And you know what? That's the Protestant position. <laughs> you know, the, the guy's Jewish, but he's, he's making his argument from the scripture. And when you go back and study what the scripture actually says about politically powerful women, the mother of the king, you never end up in a situation where you have this revealed rule from God about the position of a queen mother and her influence over her son and Mary as the final fulfillment of that prophetic role. And, and what we, when, we, when we go through and study like this, we just find that the whole thing is a complete fabrication. And what we find, especially because the, the political influence of some of these women is so onerous, and odious, and and despicable, what we find is in the New Testament when Mary sometimes intervenes when her, her son is preaching or 
tries to, to get him to do something. Some of the people in the early church actually assigned to her malicious, vainglorious, and obstructionist motives that are very consistent with the political influence of mothers of the king in the Old Testament. And they describe her as basically outrunning her coverage or trying to enjoy privileges that she doesn't really have. So the early church doesn't necessarily address a whole lot about Mary as queen mother, but they definitely find it offensive. And we'll get to this when we talk about the sinlessness of Mary, but they found it offensive when Mary intervened the way some of these politically powerful women did in the Old Testament. So that's, I wanted our listeners to know that you don't have to take the queen mother stuff lying down, go to the scriptures, read the genealogies, find that there's no general rule. There's nothing that was obvious to us. And in fact, where there is a pattern, and that pattern is when a woman has to intervene to get her son on the throne because he's not next in line, that doesn't apply to Mary anyway. And frankly, a godly Christian woman doesn't long for that kind of power anyway and wouldn't want it. Yeah, obviously, uh, these these the last four who tried to, or who put their, their sons in the throne who were illegitimate, but Christ is the legitimate heir to the throne. And so that needs to be stated emphatically that that, that wouldn't even... The, the comparison, I think, between those other four women and Mary and her relationship with Christ would, would just be erroneous to, to make such a comparison because certainly Christ is is the legitimate heir to uh, to the throne and he, uh, he, he's the king of kings. And uh, and the Lord of Lords. So, excellent. I do. Stuff. I do want to say. I, I'll say one thing on there that that Solomon was indeed supposed to be the next king, and and the fact that Bathsheba is his mother, is is we know the whole story there. Uh, I I don't want to take away from the fact that Solomon was was a good king and he was he was a wise king. The only pattern I wanted to point out is that the pattern we find is women advocating where her son is not the heir apparent and not obviously next to the throne. And so anyway, I want to make sure I point that out because it's not that Solomon was a bad king or terrible king, just that that's the pattern we find. And it certainly does not apply to Mary. And therefore the argument for the Kabira or the queen mother falls apart. Yeah. So does that make sense? It does. It does. Thank you. So, and, uh, uh, and, and by the way, if I, if I say anything wrong, just feel free to correct me. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's not necessarily wrong. The whole thing was a big mess because of what David had done. There's no doubt about that. And, and I think it's very interesting and it's important that you brought that one up is that based on the argument from the surrounding nations, that, that, that point that Roman Catholics make, what's interesting about this is that the Hittite nation was actually known for having a role like that. And Bathsheba was married to Uriah the Hittite. And it's conceivable that she imported some of her presumptuousness. Of course, you know, that, that would all be inference, and so we don't want to go there. But it's very interesting that in the surrounding nations, you do find that practice. But the question is, is it legitimate for us to import that into the church? And in fact, can we actually find evidence for a role like that in the history that we have in the Old Testament? And we can't. We find a lot of inconsistencies and countervailing evidence. And that's why Protestants do not sin against Mary by rejecting her role as queen of the universe or the the, the, the queen of all of heaven, uh, whose commands even God himself obeys. It's, it's a ridiculous doctrine, a ridiculous teaching from Roman Catholicism. The scripture doesn't support it as much as they try to stretch it out of the Old Testament. It just isn't there. 
Yeah, that's good. So, uh, all right, where are we at? Well, okay, so that, that wraps up our summary on the Queen Mother. And what I want to get into next is Mary as Theotokos. And in this case, it's a Greek term, and it means God-bearer. Although I don't want to, I don't want to extract all the potential meaning out of that word tokos because tokos can actually refer to uh, a woman who bears a child or delivers a child in childbirth. So you take the word theos, which would refer to God, and, and toku, which would refer to bearer, and you put a theotoku or theotokos or theotoket, depending on the conjugation, and you end up with a word that means God bearer. Now, what's interesting here is that there is indeed a Greek word for father, and it is pateras. There is a Greek word for mother. It is mitera. And what we don't find in uh, in the early church is the term theomitera, or, uh, or, or mother of God. What we do find is theotokos. And what, what I want to point out, though, is that that gets translated by Roman Catholics into the Latin as Mater Dei or Dei Genitrix. And both of those, you know, Mater Dei means mother of God and Dei Genitrix is the, basically the, the generator of God or in, in, a, in a genetic sense. I mean, that's where, you know, that's where we get our word for genetics is from that term is that Mary is the generator of God, the Genitrix. And, it's, and it can, in fact, be translated as mother because it's the feminine sense. Now, what's interesting is that Mary is not actually called Mother of God in the Latin until Ambrose, and John Cassian, and Vincent of Lorenz. And so these are, um, these are men from the late 4th century, early 5th century. So the, the term Mater Dei, or uh, you know, Mother of God, isn't rendered in Latin in the church until Ambrose, and John Cassian, and Vincent of Lorenz. So we're talking late 4th century, early 5th century. So, so what is the early evidence for Theotokos? So I think probably the most famous because it comes from the um, it's it's supposed to be from allegedly the uh, the the second or third century it's it's Papyrus 470 in Ryland's library and I would encourage folks to look that up online in fact if you just type in Papyrus 470 in Theotokos you'll get a, 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 some really nice high definition images of a papyrus that has some letters on it. And, and a good portion of some of the letters are missing, and it's very difficult to reconstruct the word, but it has been reconstructed as Theotokos, and, and one scholar dates it to the uh, second or third century. So so Roman Catholics have this argument that, wow, Mary was being worshipped, and Mary was being, a, a, uh, well, they're not going to say worshipped. I would say that they worship Mary, but that's for a different uh, different episode. But they'll say Mary was being appealed to in prayer as a protectress as early as the second century or third century. But what's funny is you go to the Papyrus uh, 470 in Ryland's library, and it's a publication that you can you can find online and download. And, and actually one scholar read it and said, I think this is probably from the second or third century. And another scholar who co-authored the, you know, the compilation of papyri from, from the early church. And, and he said, well, I, I think this actually from the late fourth century and other scholars put it even into the fifth century but it's not it's not uh there's nothing in it that says this is definitely from the second century or definitely from the fourth century 
It's just that scholars have disagreed on it. And so it's not necessarily proof that Theotokos is this early term that's apostolic. Now, there's, uh, there's some claims that Hippolytus, who was from 170 to 235 AD, who lived from 170 to 235 AD, uh, and yet the evidence shows that if you go back and look at all of his original documents or the best ones we can find, that, that actually the use of Theotokos is an interpolation. It gets added later. It's not something that he originally would have written. Uh, some folks would say that Origen used the term, and Origen was from, uh, lived from 185 to 254 AD. Uh, it's, the, the problem is that the only evidence we have that Origen used the term is that uh, Socrates, a 5th century historian, claimed that it was in Origen's commentary in Romans, but we don't have any of the original documents for that section of Romans, and so we can't go back and verify that he actually used the term. We just have a 5th century writer saying that he did. So uh, others would say, well, Dionysius of Alexandria used it, but uh, he doesn't actually use the exact form, uh, Theotokos. And so let's just, at the outset, let's say there's, there's really, there's nothing out there yet, you know, from the first three centuries, the first two centuries, that's, that has evidence, direct, verifiable evidence that the word Theotokos is used at all in the early church. Now, uh, I'm going to quote uh, Father Juniper, uh, sorry, Father Carol O'Connor, who is uh, uh, a Mariologist in the Roman Catholic Church, long since passed, but he's uh, very well esteemed among uh, Roman Catholic apologists and scholars. But uh, he actually says, and this is quoting from his work on Mariology, he says that Alexander of Alexandria in 324 AD is the first certain literary use of the title Theotokos. So let's go to Alexander of Alexandria. I have no problem with history. I have no problem researching the history, and I have no problem with, with what I find there. And what's really interesting is that when Alexander of Alexandria uses the word Theotokos, he uses it in contrast with the title he uses for God. And the title he uses for God is Theogonius, because Jesus' divine generation is from his father. And so Alexander of Alexandria uses the term Theogonius to refer to God the Father and Theotokos to refer to Mary. And it's interesting when we juxtapose his uses of these two terms, you see that he is focusing on the eternal generation of Jesus from his father and so refers to God the Father as Theogonius. And then when he refers to Mary, he says it in the context of Jesus taking on a body. And that's when he refers to Mary as Theotoko. Now, there's some that will translate it as Mary, mother of God. There are others that would translate it as Mary, bearer of God. And in this case, what's interesting is that he uses the term right after he says that Jesus did not merely appear to have a body, but actually wore one or carried one. So in other words, he's making the point that Jesus really had a body. And then he says that that is of Mary. Now, so, so let's just review very quickly. The first time that we find, or that we can confirm that the word Theotokos is applied to Mary, it is used as, uh, it's juxtaposed with a term that's used of God, Theogonius. Well, Gonius 
and I want you we're going to use some explicit terms here. So if the kids are listening to the podcast, go ahead and shield their ears for now. But the word gonius is where we get our word gonads, which are the the organs of generation in the human body. So when we talk about the divine generation of God, Alexander of Alexandria is referring to God the Father as Theogonius, the generator of God. And, and then when he gets to Mary and talking about the body that Jesus took on to become like us, he uses the term Theotoko. Now, if we were just to look at this and say, oh, look, he called Mary Theotoko, and therefore Theotoko is a, a legitimate term, and then we just move on. And this is the kind of argument that Hank Hanegraaff would fall for, by the way. Wow, Alexander of Alexandria uses Theotokos, therefore we can use Theotokos, and Mary's the mother of God. But when he uses it, he uses it in a way that proves that the Latinization of the term, that is, de generatrix, or genetrix, is incorrect. Because he had actually said that de, de genetrix, which is the feminine version, but that the generation of God is a title that is reserved to the Father, not to Mary. And so the first time that we actually find Theotokos used in the literature that we can find is actually used in the way that Protestants would use it. And I want to emphasize that point because I don't have a problem with Theotokos in the sense that Mary carried in her womb a person who is God himself incarnate and who that person is to be worshipped. And, and Roman Catholics will say, well, if you don't say that Mary is Theotokos, mother of God, then you don't really believe that Jesus is God and therefore really uh, you're, you're an Arian or you're, you're a Nestorian who thinks that Mary only gave birth to a nature and not to a person. But I want to read from you several other writers from the same period, and I want to show you how consistent their teachings are with what we Protestants would believe. And again, I want to say Theotokos can be found in the Antinicene era, that is, in the years before the Council of Nicaea. There's no doubt about it. I made an argument earlier about, uh, I made a point earlier about so much of what Roman Catholicism wants to find in the early church, they can't find uh, in the Nicene era. But they do find this. They do find this term Theotokos, and everybody would agree, yes, Alexander of Alexander used it. But when he used it, he used it in counterdistinction from a term he used of God that means that De Genetrix is absolutely the incorrect translation, or Mater Dei is the incorrect translation, and it certainly doesn't mean, mean mother of God. There's actually a Greek word for mother, and they didn't use it. So let's look at Lactantius. He, was, he lived from 250 to 325 A.D., which means that he died the same year as the Council of Nicaea. This is from Divine Institutes, Book 4, Chapter 13. And, and I, I want just listen to how he describes God the Son as motherless, okay? <laughs> it's important to hear this because we're told by Roman Catholics, unless you accept Mary as mother of God, you're not really Christian. We're going to, by the time we're finished, Roman Catholicism will have to anathematize Lactantius, Athanasius, and Augustine himself because they all say the same thing. So this is what Lactantius said. For which reason it was fitting that the son also should be twice born, that he might become fatherless and motherless. For in his first nativity, which was spiritual, he was motherless because he was begotten by God the Father alone without the office of a mother. 
But in his second, which was in the flesh, he was born of a virgin's womb without the office of a father. Okay, now let's go to Athanasius. This is from about 356 AD. He says, and this is from his Discourse 3 Against the Arians, paragraph 29. Now the scope and character of Holy Scripture, as we have often said, is this. It contains a double account of the Savior, that he was ever God and is the Son, being the Father's word and radiance and wisdom. And that afterward for us, he took the flesh of a virgin, Mary, bearer of God, that was made man. Now that, that's the term, the bearer of God, Theotokos, Roman Catholics would translate this as Mary, the mother of God. But I want you to notice the distinction that he makes, the same one like Tatius makes, that insofar as Jesus was eternally begotten by his father, he, he is begotten without a mother. And insofar as he is begotten in the flesh, he has Mary as his mother. Okay? Now, I don't think that we can make the case that Athanasius was an Nestorian or an Arian, and so we're not going to make an argument about the different persons or the eternal generation of God because Athanasius isn't arguing for either of those, those issues. He's simply saying that, you know what? Like Lactantius before him and like Athanasius of Alexandria before him, he's just saying that there's a double account of the Savior's generation or his nativity. In fact, his generation is from his father. He took flesh from a virgin. And when he uses that term, he uses the same one his mentor did, Alexander of Alexandria, said Theotokos when referring to Mary. So let's go to Augustine, and he lived from 354 to 450 AD. And this one is just absolutely mind-blowing when you think about how big a deal Roman Catholics make about Theotokos. This is from his lectures on the Gospel of John, Lecture 8, Paragraphs 8 and 9. It says, speaking of Christ, it says, He was in an extraordinary manner begotten of the Father without a mother, born of a mother without a father. Without a mother, he was God, and without a father, he was man. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? He says, without a mother, he was God. Without a father, he was man. Without a mother before all time, without a father in the end of time. Our Lord Jesus Christ was both God and man. According as he was God, he had not a mother. According as he was man, he had not a father. She was the mother then of his flesh, of his humanity, of the weakness which for our sakes took upon him. I don't know a Protestant who would disagree with that. and I don't know a Catholic that wants to anathematize Augustine because he said it that way. But notice how he distinguished between the eternal generation of son by the son by the father, saying that in so far as he is God, he does not have a mother. Now, why should Augustine have to repent of that statement? Why? Why? It's consistent with what Athanasius of Alexandria said. It's consistent with what Lactantius said. It's consistent with what Athanasius said. According as he was God, he had not a mother. She was the mother then of his flesh, of his humanity. None of that actually is disrespectful to Jesus or to Mary. And it shows that in the early church, they were wrestling with how do we describe the incarnation, which is by no means a simple thing to understand. But how do we do that without taking away from the glory of God and without heaping all sorts of unnecessary titles and adulation and worship on Mary? And the early church figured out a way to do this. They said, you know what, Theotokos, they didn't say Theometeras, uh, Theometera, uh, they made a point that insofar as he was generated, 
he was generated by his father alone, insofar as he took on flesh. He had a mother, and that mother was Theotokos. I don't have a problem with that. But what I don't get out of all this is when Athanasius of Alexandria distinguishes between Theogonius, referring to God the Father, and Theotokos, regarding Mary, I absolutely cannot get De Genetrix as a Latinization of that Greek term. And it's absolutely incorrect for the Roman Church to do it. And I'll say it again, they didn't start doing that to the latter part of the 4th century. Even though they can trace the word earlier than Isaiah, the idea of Mary as as Mater Dei or De Genetrix is a late 4th century novelty that is highly inconsistent with Lactantius and Alexander of Alexandria and Augustine himself. So uh, that, that covers what I wanted to do today. Uh, I think that we need to go to uh, follow up on this in the next episodes. But what I, what I wrote, just, just to summarize what we've talked about, is that uh, oftentimes Protestants will fall for the empty arguments Roman Catholics use. And because they don't know the history very well, they fall for the fraudulent historical arguments and then make the same illogical leaps that Roman Catholicism has to make to sustain its doctrines. But what we find is that what Roman Catholicism teaches as apostolic actually originates much, much later than the apostles. And Theotokos is one of the few exceptions. But as I mentioned, when you look at the first use of it that can be confirmed, Theotokos is distinguished from Theogonius in a way that shows that Theotokos can't possibly mean De Genetrix, as the Latins have tried to make it. And then when it comes to the office of Queen Mother, as we see from the scriptures and the, uh, and the genealogies, it just doesn't make sense. Protestants are under no obligation to honor her as Mother of God or Queen of the Universe. And I would encourage Hank Hanegraaff to rethink his position on that, although I don't know if he's gotten that far. <laughs> I don't know if he's gotten that far, but he, he's on his way, and uh, I just ask, invite him to study the history on this. Yeah, and I don't even know how to get this episode to him. <laughs> I, I I would like to uh, see if I can post it in the comments section on his uh, website. Um, let let me ask you a, a question. So Athanasius says uh, the the one who dealt with Arianism, right? Uh, and they they coined the phrase Athanasius Contramundum. Is is he? That, that's the one. And I want to make sure we understand, though, that Alexander of Alexandria is the one that deposed Arius. He's the first one to raise the issue, and that's when Constantine said, okay, we need to right. have a council to sort all right. this out. Yeah, Arius, Athanasius uh, of Alexandria was yeah, understood. Arius called him a, a heretic, right? And then uh, it took some time for uh, for Alexand Alexandria right, to, uh, to, to uh, I guess confront Arius, but then uh, Athanasius eventually took up the charge against Arianism. Is yes, that right? Yes, yes. Okay. Well, the, the Council of Nicaea addressed the issue and, uh, and, and, and also addressed some other administrative issues in the church as well. Right. And then because the Arians kept on appealing to the emperor and they were accusing uh, Athanasius of teaching error, eventually Athanasius had to be tried and then acquitted for, for the accusations against him. But but so Alexander of Alexandria is the one that deposed Arius in the first uh, synod dealing with Arianism. And then uh, this got elevated to a, a church council where it was addressed there. And then Alexander of Alexandria eventually died and Athanasius picked up the, his mantle and, and kept on defending. Right, right. And Athanasius Contramundum is uh, 
Athanasius against the world. And because at, at times, seemingly, it, it, it looked as if he was really the only one standing. Of course, that's not true. Uh, we, we know that even at times when, when it looks like we're the only ones standing for truth, I mean, God always saves a remnant to others who who are right there with us. Uh, but Athanasius Contramundum <clears throat> means uh, Athanasius against the world. But so you pointed out that, that this was difficult, uh, th- that this is a difficult thing to, I guess, reconcile or, or uh, think about is uh, the, the incarnation and uh, the, the deity of Christ and, and how that plays into, uh, you know, uh, Christ being a man, fully man and fully God. And uh, this is about the time that these issues were, because uh, Arius and Arianism was attacking the deity of Christ, that this is a, this is after the Council of Nicaea when he wrote this. And, and so he's, I, I suppose, he's further developing the, the biblical view of, of Christ in his writings. Yeah, Athanasius was defending the biblical view, absolutely. Uh, I want to, because I didn't give the reference, I want to go back to it. Alexander of Alexander, where we quoted him, was chapter 12 of his his epistles on Arianism and the deposition of Arius. So it's important to go back and read that. And what was at stake here was that uh, the Arians did not believe that Jesus was eternally generated of his father, but he was generated in time. And and therefore, there was a point when he did not exist. Right. The uh, the or the church was actually arguing for uh, he was eternally generated by his father and so the uh, that's why it was so important to identify that that when addressing that particular issue the generation of Christ is relegated to the father alone it's not combined with Mary and it's so, it's so important to know that, that again the first time Theotokos is used it's in counterdistinction to Theogonius which is the true term for generation of God and therefore we can't say Mary is de genitrix or matter day because that's simply not the way the term was used when Athen, uh, Alexander of Alexander was using it so right well Tim uh, let me let me ask you can you let our listeners know uh, what we will so we're, we're gonna do a, a part two and uh, we'll see if, if there's a part three that comes after this I mean we could we could go on uh, on this topic for quite a while but would you would you let our our listeners know what it is that we're going to just uh, cover next time? Uh, if if I look at your notes, uh, uh, I think you're going to be getting into Mary as the Ark of the of the New Covenant and uh, and some other topics. Yes, yes. And in fact, uh, with uh, Queen Mother and Theotokos out of the way, uh, let's we'll, we'll continue with Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant. And the reason this is so important is because the other Marian doctrines that have been stumbling blocks for Protestants and really they're, they're the errors of the Roman Catholic Church, but they're laid before Roman for as Protestants as stumbling blocks to get us to uh, come back to Roman Catholicism, as it were. But uh, when we talk about Mary's sinlessness and we talk about the uh, Mary's perpetual virginity and Mary's uh, bodily assumption into heaven, all of them trace back to the ark and that mary is the, that the ark prefigured mary and that mary is the eschatological fulfillment of the typology of the ark and therefore uh and, and once you establish that she's the ark uh, you establish that she is sinless because the ark was holy you establish that she's a perpetually virgin because no man could touch the ark you 
you uh, established that she was assumed bodily into heaven because the scriptures talk about arise, O Lord, until I rest and thou and the ark of thy strength. And so, so all this comes back to Mary being the ark of the new covenant. And what's interesting, we find in the early church, they didn't believe that at all. And uh, then we'll wrap up uh, on all these different topics in our second episode. So, well, good? we, yeah, it sounds great. I'm really looking forward to that. And I really appreciate you coming on today and uh, giving us an overview and refuting the, the Roman Catholic view as, as unbiblical. So I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Um, just uh, want to remind our listeners to also check out our blog. We are uh, posting articles. Uh, I don't know how, how frequently we're going to be posting our, our articles, but uh, Tim Kaufman has some articles that he's uh, generously posted on our blog to to give some uh, to, to just give a little little taste of what he's capable of in writing. And if you want to see uh, if you want to see more of his writing, uh, please go to his blog, uh, whitehorseblog.com. And uh, with that, we will wish everybody a blessed week. So we'll check in next time. Thanks a lot. Bye. Looking for that perfect track for your next evangelism outreach? Look no further. At TrackedPlanet.com, we have solid biblical tracks that are a breeze to hand out. They are beautifully designed and are the highest quality tracks available. With over 80 different designs in stock and literally hundreds more available by custom order, we're sure to have just the right one for you. You can get any of our items printed with your church or ministry information or have us design a brand new track just for you. We are committed to the solid biblical message of law to the proud and grace to the humble. Each tract is firm on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the necessity of repentance and faith in salvation. Come check us out at TrackedPlanet.com and make sure you use coupon code BTWN at checkout for 10% off your entire order. That's T-R-A-C-T-Planet.com, coupon code BTWN.